0: Welcome to CRE Success, the podcast, where we help people working in commercial real estate achieve their professional goals. Check us out online at CREsuccess.co forward slash podcast. And now here's your host, Darren Krakowiak.
1: Hello and welcome to episode four for season two of CRE Success, the podcast. Today we're talking to Steve Glavesky. Steve is an entrepreneur, an author, a podcaster. He's a thinker and his passion lies in helping people create more impact and lead more fulfilling lives. And one way that he does that is by helping people get more intentional about how they spend their time and how to use their time more efficiently. And this is definitely a topic which I think is important in commercial real estate. In fact, inside CRE Success Membership, I do actually have a whole module on time management and it's all about how to invest time to free up time and I've got more than 30 ideas on how commercial real estate professionals can save time using things like prioritization matrices, self-discipline, technology. Really, it's all about freeing up more time for what matters, including revenue generating activities, but also for what matters outside of work. So I know that could help you, but if you're looking for another voice on it, Steve is an amazing expert. We're going to hear his ideas about how we can all spend our time more efficiently, in just 30 seconds now the world of work has changed everyone's looking for new ways to add flexible working into their plans and portfolios Hub Australia is the national expert in premium flexible workspaces that offer five-star hospitality service Hub Australia is already partnering with leading developers Brookfield and Amalgamated Property Group to deliver the future of work for their tenants head to hubaustralia.com to learn more about Australia's leading flexible workspace experts.
0: And now it's time for the interview on CRE Success, the podcast.
1: Steve, welcome to CRE Success, the podcast. It's an absolute
2: pleasure to be here, Darren.
1: Steve, the first thing that we do is we ask our guests to jump into the virtual elevator to give us their elevator pitch. Steve, who are you?
2: Well, essentially everything that I do is about unlocking people's potential to create impact in the world. Given that 85% of people globally are disengaged at work, I think it's important piece to play and I do that through my businesses. Collective Campus works with both corporate organizations and startups. Lemonade Stand works with kids on entrepreneurship and then through my books, podcasts and articles which are for the everyday man and woman out there who want to make more impact in the world and lead more fulfilling lives.
1: Well, it's wonderful to have you here today because I've consumed your content as a live audience member, as a podcast listener, as a webinar participant, a blog reader and I've seen your articles in Harvard Business Review. However, the first time I came across you was because of Collective Campus. And that's because I work in commercial real estate. And my interest was, I guess, the potential for growing startups to generate demand for office space. So before we get into a discussion about time management and efficiency and office politics, I'd love to just hear about Collective Campus, what your role there is and what the purpose of the organization is.
2: Sure. So Collective Campus was founded back in 2014. And we're essentially a Corporate Innovation Accelerator. Now, we started out by helping large organizations get across different concepts like the lean startup and design thinking and things of that persuasion. But we quickly learned that large companies could benefit just by partnering with startups. So when you get the domain expertise, the distribution, the scale, the resources of a large company, and you partner that with the speed, talents, and ideas of young startups and scale-ups, you can get much further, much faster. In India, commercial real estate space. We ran Australia's first PropTech accelerator program back in 2018, I believe it was, with Charter Hall. And we've worked with a number of other companies in that space, including Ascender Singbridge over in Singapore. But really, it's about helping combine the relative strengths of both corporates and startups to mutual benefit.
1: Very nice. Well, let's move on to time management and congratulations on your latest book, which is Time Rich, Do Your Best Work, Live Your Best Life. One of the premises of the book is that people don't often freely give away money, but they're far less cautious about giving away time. Given that time is clearly a non-renewable resource we have in life, we can't replace time that's already gone, but we can always replace money. We can make more of it. Mm -hmm. Did your research cover why it is that people so undervalue time?
2: Well, I think human beings in general tend to value that, which is easily quantifiable. And we tend to value things that, put us somewhere on that sort of social hierarchy, if you will. So when we look at evaluating where we are we, compared to other people, it tends to be things like our salary, our zip code, how big our house is, what kind of car we have, all that sort of stuff that supposedly if we pursue it and obtain it, it's going to make us happier. But oftentimes it doesn't. And that's just us falling victim to the arrival fallacy. Whereas time, you can count it, but it's not something that people tend to share saying, how many hours did you save this week? It's really about how much money did you earn? What's your day rate? What's your annual salary? And things of that persuasion. I read the book because of my six to seven years, not only in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, but my decade prior to that, working for the likes of EY, Macquarie Bank, KPMG, where I just saw countless people, both corporate executives and entrepreneurs, just wasting time and spending about 50% of their time on what I call $10 an hour tasks at a detriment to their own goals and the goals of their organizations.
1: So where do you stand on the idea of you should understand a task before you outsource it? So an example might be editing this podcast. So I should make sure that I know the process before I outsource it. Where do you stand on that?
2: Yeah, look, I think there is definitely value to that approach, more so when it comes to making sure that people you delegate to aren't taking you for a ride. Of course, that risk can be somewhat mitigated by making sure you work with reputable people who have good ratings and yeah, haven't got any bad marks against their name. Now it really depends on what the actual task is and how central that task is to the mission of your organization. If it is something like a podcast, yes, look, it's great to get in there and have a bit of a play yourself. But ultimately if this is something that isn't aligned with your personal strengths, if you can find someone out there like a reputable agency or a reputable outsourcer who does this all the time and has nothing but good reviews, I think there is nothing wrong with giving them that task off the bat. Now in my case, With Future Squared, I did edit the first 100 or so episodes. I enjoyed it up until about episode 20. And then for whatever reason, I did another 80 episodes. This is going back a few years. (laughs) And outsourcing that saved me at least two or three hours a week. And then when you apply that to a number of different tasks, you find one that you save a lot of time and two that you can redistribute that time to get more stuff done, essentially.
1: Yeah, I'm definitely outsourcing the editing for season (laughs) two, which I'm looking forward to. So what are some ways that people can quickly identify if they're not being efficient with their time?
2: Yeah, I mean, firstly, they can look at their calendar for a start and see what they've actually said yes to in terms of those meetings. They can look at the average time of those meetings. I mean, are the meetings 60 minutes on average, when in reality, a lot of meetings could get to the case in 15 to 20 minutes. You look at how you start your day. I mean, do you spend the first hour or two of your day on this sort of non-consequential tasks, shallow level tasks? like? checking email on Twitter, on LinkedIn, effectively falling victim to evolutionary wiring that's forcing us to conserve energy, which is one of the reasons why we procrastinate. We sit down to our desks in the morning. We want to get started on that sales presentation or whatever it is, but we spend an hour on Twitter and on LinkedIn because it's an easy thing to do. It lulls us into this false sense of security that we're actually busy, but realistically, that's not moving us any closer to our goals. Other elements could be that you don't have a clear to-do list or your to-do list isn't prioritized. Perhaps you're not time boxing and perhaps you're switching tasks all day long. I mean, the average person is switching screens every 40 seconds, which equates to something like 350 times over a standard eight hour workday. And the thing about that is when you get into flow or the zone or deep work, your orders of magnitude more productive. I mean, people say five times more productive, but my experience is I am at least 10 times more productive when I'm in flow. But when you're switching tasks all day long, you're taken out of flow. I mean, the average time required to get back into that flow state after a disruption or a task switch is about 23 minutes. So if you do the math, people are switching every 40 seconds. We're spending very little time in flow. And we're knowledge workers, we should be cultivating the ability to do more focused work. And that could be sitting still for one hour, focusing on one thing. Rather than jumping around from task to task all day long.
1: I have seen your great cheat sheet, which is 100 productivity hacks. And I noticed quite a few of the tips are about avoiding interruptions and distractions and getting into that flow state. So I was going to ask you how long it takes to get in there. So it's 23 minutes. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that on average is 23 minutes. This is based on a study that was performed. It's been replicated a number of times, but ultimately they gave different people tasks to perform. And then one of the groups was effectively interrupted with tasks that were not in the same context, so totally different tasks. And then there were tasks that were somewhat similar. So for example, I could be writing an article and that interruption could be searching for a reference. And what they actually found was whether or not it was the same context or a different context, you still suffered that cognitive switching penalty, which was at or around 23 minutes on average.
1: You mentioned meetings before and how we should look to schedule them to be a shorter period of time, which is a great tip. One of many people's bugbears is just pointless meetings, right? So do you have some rules that help define whether a meeting should even take place or not?
2: Yeah, sure. I think one of the biggest ways you can save time on meetings is whether it's purely to communicate information. Now, there might be cases where maybe it's a weekly stand up that your team performs and it keeps everyone on the same page and there is some value derived from that, or it could be like a quarterly town hall meeting where you want to celebrate the wins that the organization has had. But there are far too many meetings held where we're simply communicating information that could be done through Slack, or through email. One-way communication with information. And then if anybody has any questions or thoughts or concerns to follow up on, they can do that subsequently. One hack that you might want to look at in this space is especially if your team uses Slack, although there may be a similar plugin with Microsoft Teams, is a plugin called Must Read. So rather than filling up people's sort of mental real estate with all this sort of stuff that they supposedly need to read on Slack or on Microsoft Teams, Having a must read and just pinging the people who absolutely need to know this, I think goes a long way to making sure that people can cultivate more time and flow and don't need to sort of rummage through 75 notifications first thing in the morning to find out what's relevant to them and what's not. So that's one thing that I would definitely do. And another thing that Dominic Price, who was the resident work futurist over at Lassian, he's got this concept called boomerangs and sticks with respect to meetings, where he actually found that his calendar was back to back all week long, which is quite common for a lot of people these days with meetings that he didn't even set up, meetings that he was simply invited to. And he thought, well, what happens if I actually say no to these meetings and reject the meeting request? And it turned out that two thirds of the time, the meetings were essentially sticks. So he threw back the meeting request, it didn't come back. And only one third of the time were those meeting requests boomerangs, where they did come back and they said, look, we really want you at this meeting. Just by saying no, he was able to free himself up of about 15 hours a week, he could then redistribute into higher value work.
1: Love that. That's what the decline request is for, to use it, to press it.
2: 100%. But in a lot of organizations, we don't have that culture where you're allowed to say no to meetings. People feel, if I've been invited to a meeting, then I absolutely have to say yes, which sits in stark contrast to what you see at companies like, say, Basecamp, is if you want to have a meeting with someone, you really need to justify and or sell the meeting to them. You can't just block timing people's calendar. Whereas in most organizations today, we fall victim to a calendar Tetris and your calendar just gets filled up by other people and you have very little time left to devote to your own priorities.
1: Well, the flip time of flow is, I guess, maybe working too long. So is there such a thing as being too busy or working for too long that then diminishing returns or burnout starts to set in and then you're not really focused Mm anymore?
2: Yeah. I mean, when you look at the flow state itself, countless studies Anecdotal and uh, empirical show us that we can only get into the flow state for about four hours a day. And that's not to say that you work just four hours, but it's to say that you can get into the flow state for four hours a day. And then perhaps you tack on a couple of hours for shallow level tasks, meetings that you absolutely need to attend to, and any administrative stuff that you can't outsource or automate. And that's been shown time and time again. And it's not just in the corporate office, we see this with. Study that was performed between three groups of scientists. One group worked 20 hours a week, the second worked 40 hours a week, and the third worked 60 hours a week. And it turned out that the 20 hour a week group was twice as productive as the 40 hour a week group. And the 60 hour a week group was actually the least productive because we're not robots, we're human beings, and rest is fundamental to us being at our absolute best. And so you can burn the midnight oil for X amount of time, and that's fine. Work can sometimes be a little bit like the NBA playoffs or the finals. You've got to dig deep. But even professional athletes, they're not playing at NBA playoff level all year long. They've got the regular season. They've got the preseason. They've got the off season. And we need to know when to hit that off switch as well. We see this in music as well. At the Berlin Conservatory of Music, where for centuries, the amount of deliberate practice that people partake in on a daily basis is about four hours. Because the instructors know that after that, the diminishing point of returns has been reached and people fall off a cliff very quickly. And one last example I'll give you, Charles Darwin, who obviously came up with the foundational theory of evolution. He worked about five hours a day and that included one hour for lunch. So we can do great work on less hours rather than fooling ourselves into thinking that if we just spend more time at our desks, we'll get more quality work done.
1: So if you've got a batch... People talk about batching things, doing the same Mm. task over and over again, do it for four or five hours and then give yourself a break.
2: Yeah, look, I think with batching, what the benefit of batching really is, it means that you do less task switching. So the typical Mm. person nowadays checks email about once every six minutes and they spend about three hours a day in the inbox. And again, if you're paying that cognitive switching penalty, then you want to take out those task switches. That's why you want to batch email, maybe check it once in the morning, maybe at lunchtime and maybe towards the end of the day rather than every six minutes. And the same thing goes for Slack. The same thing goes for just checking your phone involuntarily. And that's a really difficult one for a lot of people. I mean, the average person nowadays spends about four hours a day staring at their smartphone screen. And when you look at what that is actually attributable to, oftentimes about three hours of that is social media and in particular, Instagram and Twitter. So cultivating more sort of fortitude over when we reach for our devices, when we switch screens is going to be so powerful for people because nowadays, I believe it was Scott Belsky, the founder of Behance, who said the true scarce resource of our time is attention, is focus. And if you can cultivate the ability to focus for even two hours a day, I mean, truly focus on one task without switching, without doing other things and getting your best work done That's a huge competitive advantage over people who are just switching all day long, reminiscent of Pavlov's dog when the bell goes off. So I think that's a really important thing for people to take in.
1: I know that you'll definitely agree with this little hack, but turning off notifications from your smartphone is a big one to stop you reaching for it every six minutes or whatever it could be.
2: Turning off notifications is absolutely huge as is putting your phone away. One thing I've also found though is your behavior away from your desk also impacts how you behave at your desk. So if I'm sitting on my couch and I feel the threat of imminent boredom setting in, I'm going to reach for my phone because I don't like the feeling of discomfort. I don't like the feeling of boredom. And what that means is if my tolerance for boredom goes down, when I'm sitting at my desk and I'm trying to focus on one thing and I feel a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit of discomfort, creeps in. What am I going to do? I'm going to switch tasks. I'm going to jump on LinkedIn for a bit. I'm going to respond to some emails instead of focusing on that one difficult task. So just cultivating the ability to be bored, to do nothing for 20 or 30 minutes at a time, to go for a walk outside with no podcast, without your phone, and just be present in nature, that can go a long way to helping you focus as well.
1: Let's talk about bad workplace cultures and office politics. This Mm -hmm. is a topic that I've noticed that you've been getting into more recently. What has been the reason why you've started to talk about this more?
2: I think, I mean, for me, it's all about productivity and helping people get high value work done and being fulfilled by their place of work. I mean, 85% of people globally just aren't engaged at work. So I think it's it just ties into what we've been doing over the last seven years. And so when I look at the culture at many organizations, it's based on, well, I actually say that most large organizations run like crap, which is a useful visual mnemonic uh, for consensus seeking. So Whatever the decision is, let's get 10 people around the table and make sure everybody's across. Let's always use reply all and make sure people's inboxes are full to the brim after just one day. Consensus seeking, hyper-responsiveness, the tendency to want to respond to things within half an hour and the byproduct of that, which is if we do that, then we just don't cultivate the ability to focus on one thing for extended periods of time. A hyper-availability, which we've kind of touched on somewhat, just saying yes to all sorts of things. I'm getting married tomorrow, but no worries. I'll come along to this meeting. And then P for process paralysis. So C-R-A-P, process paralysis, shows up in myriad ways, but just trying to get, say, a $500 approval, sometimes in many organizations can be difficult. Companies have things like delegations of authority where decisions and financial approvals might require three people to sign off. And whenever you need to shepherd three people along, it can take you weeks, if not months in some cases to get their sign-offs. And what that ultimately means is it gets really difficult to get anything done. We have really long feedback loops. And when you're working in a place where you just don't see forward momentum, you don't feel like you have a sense of control, that is ultimately demoralizing. And it's one of the key reasons why we have workplace stress. And it's one of the key reasons why we have such a high disengagement rate at work. And having worked in large organizations that have embodied these types of cultures, as well as startups and small businesses that have embodied a totally different way of working where people are empowered to make decisions and learn from their mistakes, I can tell you that the latter is a hell of a lot more rewarding and fulfilling. And if we're going to spend half of our time at a place of work, well, then let's create cultures and organizations that people actually enjoy working at, but also can get stuff done and can create impact for the world.
1: So how does work from home fit into all of this? Working from home, making companies better at communication because they need to be when they don't have face-to-face contact? Or is there some other impact that's being felt within large organizations? Because you mentioned large organizations in particular are prone to these sort of bad workplace cultures. What has been the impact and what do you see the ongoing impact of work from home and greater flexibility on where people do work?
2: Sure. Great question. And I think with work from home, it's an opportunity for us to hit a big red reset button, and change the way we work for the better. Unfortunately, what I'm seeing thus far coming out of particularly large traditional organizations is essentially a recreation of the physical office online. I wrote an article about this called the five levels of remote work, which was inspired by Matt Mullenweg, who runs WordPress, which powers about 30% of the internet. They've got about 1,300 employees across 75 countries and a market cap of over a billion dollars, and they don't have a central office. It's completely distributed. And when I talk about recreating the physical office online you know, and the five levels of remote work, most companies are at level two, which is back-to-back Zoom calls. Instead of meetings, it's back-to-back Zoom calls. Instead of 50 to 60 physical interruptions a day in the office, it is a hell of a lot more than that via Slack or Microsoft Teams. And what that ultimately means is that people are now working longer than what they were before. Studies that I've read suggest that people are working an hour longer, and that's because there is no disconnect between home and work. And so while remote work gives organizations the impetus to change the way they work, to focus on better asynchronous communication rather than hyper-responsiveness and rather than defaulting to meetings for every form of communication, be it one-way or two-way communication, It has just created this, I suppose, exacerbation of the way things were before and people are working longer and perhaps even the studies aren't out yet, but workplace stress, emotional well-being, I'd be keen to see what that's looking like now because when you're staring at the screen all day long, when you're suffering from Zoom fatigue, when you don't have the, I suppose, novelty that comes from traveling to work, seeing different places, seeing different people, I mean, that can take its toll on people, particularly if you're working for an organization where you spend a lot of time in meetings spend a lot of time responding to emails and weeks and months go by and you don't feel like you're making any meaningful progress towards some meaningful goals.
1: I guess some people probably feel they're actually getting more flexibility because they might be stroking the cat or the dog while they're on a call or they can go Mm -hmm. for a walk while they're doing a Zoom meeting or whatever it is, but actually they're working longer hours and they're more imbalanced in their life as a result of the flexibility that they've been granted from being able to work from home.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, prior to the remote work shift, I mean, we had that clear delineation between home and work. And it was a physical delineation, it was a time delineation, whereas now we just don't have that. And I think it's important to create boundaries and rituals. Otherwise, you will find yourself checking email at 11pm or 6am and all hours of the day, essentially, because your laptop, it, it might be right there on the coffee table while you're trying to chill out with the family. And maybe catch up on some Netflix TV shows or whatever it is. And, hey, let me just quickly check email. And before you know it, 30 minutes go by. So setting boundaries with people that you live with while you're working to make sure that, hey, if I'm in flow, I signal that to my family. If I need the next three hours to just focus on some really difficult work, maybe the door's closed. Maybe I have a conversation with them prior. Maybe we have a shared calendar where we can all see what's going on and we know not to interrupt each other at certain times. I think that works to some degree. Physical boundaries. So once I'm done for the day, perhaps I close my laptop and I lock it away somewhere so I can still go and get it, obviously, but I put it there for a reason. Whereas if it's on the coffee table within arm's reach, I'm more likely to just reach for it. And then team boundaries. When you make a habit of responding to emails from colleagues at 10 p.m. or from superiors or whatever the case is, then you're effectively letting them set your boundaries. So if you Mm -hmm. don't set boundaries, if you don't have that conversation with people and say, "Hey, after six o'clock or whatever it is, that's family time. Unless it's incredibly urgent, I'm going to be offline during that time. And I'll get back to you tomorrow morning. Unless we have those conversations, people will set boundaries for us. So we need to be more intentional about doing that ourselves.
1: And even just defining incredibly urgent, most of us aren't involved in life and death tasks at work. So I find as well, just not answering emails after a certain time, sooner or later, people get the message that they're not going to get a response. And If you respond to people after hours, then they get the idea that you're available at that time, Mm -hmm. which can be the wrong thing to do. I do want to ask you one final question just on office politics, and that is the impact of leadership. So how much does leadership influence the type of workplace culture that exists?
2: A hell of a lot, I would say. I mean, leadership influences workplace politics and behaviors, firstly, through their own behaviors and their own approach to work. Are they constantly calling meetings? Are they micromanaging people? have they modeled certain behaviors that suggest that we need to be responding to things within half an hour, that we always need to be online, that we need to be setting up meetings to communicate information. I think that sort of stuff is huge. But then the other side of that is what policies have leaders either created or allowed to flourish within the organization that ultimately slow us down.
1: Hey, Steve, if people want to find out more about your content or explore some of what you have to offer on the topics of time management, efficiency, workplace politics, where can they go?
2: Look, the best place to go would be steveglovesky.com. That's where they can find all about my work, whether it's blogs, podcasts, books, and my work with Collective Campus. And they can also download the 100 Productivity Hacks ebook you mentioned earlier on the download tab there. And it's a blessed place to start.
1: Awesome. It's a good tab. I love the fact there's 100 of them. It's just very <laughs> impressive in itself.
2: Well, I set myself 100 and I had to get there. So after 50, I was like, man, I'm clutching at straws now, but I got there.
1: Awesome. Well, Steve, it's been great to speak with you. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge on this episode of CRE Success, the podcast.
0: Thanks, Darren. It's been a pleasure. For more information about our guest, visit CREsuccess.co forward slash podcast. And now a final thought from Darren Krakowiak.
1: Thank you once again to Steve. And if you've been listening to CRE Success, the podcast for a while, you will know that we commit to having every episode go for less than 30 minutes. And that is a really important way to show that I respect your time. I know that you are busy. So I hope that you've got the time to invest in listening to CRE Success, the podcast every single week while we are presenting season two for you. And also Clubhouse is a way to possibly waste time if you're not good with it. But I do have 21 things that you must know before you can grow on Clubhouse. We did record that interview while we were on Clubhouse. If you do want to grab that resource on Clubhouse, if you think that that's a way that you can help grow your business or at least learn from other experts, go and check out that resource at cresuccessco forward slash Clubhouse. 21 things you must know before you can grow on Clubhouse. Is at cresuccess.co forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I will speak to you soon.
0: Thanks for listening to CRE Success, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform and be sure to leave us a five star review. For more information about the show, just check the show notes on your podcast app or visit us online at cresuccess.co.
1: 90% of the world's data was generated in the last two years. Credia is a business intelligence and analytics tool for commercial real estate professionals. Using real-time insights, track key portfolio metrics and benchmark against the market so you can make faster and well-informed decisions. With live dashboards and bespoke reporting, impress both your executive team and your property clients. It's time to turn data into your most valuable asset with Credia from Released.